In this episode of the Coffee with Philosophers podcast, we're looking at a fascinating and overlooked cosmological argument from Augustine. I'm honored to have on the podcast Dr. Matthew Flummer and Dr. Keith Hess. They've presented their paper, Augustine's Cosmological Argument, in a number of places, and I'm really excited for us to learn more about this sort of little-known argument uh, tucked away in the confessions. Matthew Flummer is professor of philosophy at Porterville College. Uh, he got his PhD from Florida State University. His research primarily focuses on free will, moral responsibility, and philosophy of religion. And he lives with his wife and kids in Central California. Dr. Keith Hess is associate professor of philosophy and apologetics at Oklahoma Baptist University. He has a PhD in philosophy from University of California, Santa Barbara. We were in the program together. Yes, same time. <laughs> yep, yep. And uh, his research focuses on philosophy of religion and apologetics. He's published several academic article, articles and has a column on logic in Salvo magazine. He's also editor of book reviews for philosophy of religion in the journal of Philosophia Christi, which is the journal of the Evangelical Philosophical Society. So. Thank you both for coming on Coffee with Philosophers. Yeah, thank you for You're having welcome. us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Do you, do you guys happen to have coffee? If not, no big deal. I've already finished mine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I already had a big cup, but I just poured myself another one. I don't. You know, it's I'm not sorry. mandatory, of course, but you might want to get a coffee if you're watching this. And uh, So normally I do a uh, five books question, but since there's two of you, we'll do a three books question. So... You guys can decide who wants to go first. What three single-volume books would you bring to a deserted island, other than the Bible, if you knew you were going to be stuck there for 10 years? I, I guess I'll go first uh, so I can take Matt's picks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so other than the Bible, I want to emphasize that. Uh, I would pick the, <laughs> the, um, the Republic by Plato, Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle, and, <clears throat> excuse me, and then Augustine's Confessions. Yeah. Excellent choices. I, I can <laughs> yeah. one-up you and say I would take the complete works of Plato. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and the complete well, works of Aristotle. <laughs> and the complete works of Augustine. How about that? There you go. That works. In one volume. That's each. good. That's good. I'll so, come over to your I'll come over to your island at some point when I yeah. get bored. You'll my, need to, yeah. My, but no Hegel, phenomenology of spirit? Mm, no. <laughs> no. Nah. Okay. All right. I, well, one of my, I actually thought about uh, having just the Lord of the Rings. That was my first thought. So to jump into the paper, I thought it'd be good to kind of get the, the big picture, the 50,000-foot view. So can you give us a, a snapshot of what you're up to in this paper and then why it matters? Why should someone care about whether Augustine has a cosmological argument? This particular section of the Confessions, in terms of like that there's a cosmological argument there, is hardly discussed in the philosophical literature. And um, even Augustine himself is left out of histories of the cosmological argument. So it's historically significant to bring this forward and to make it um, make people aware of it. And um, I think it has it has some philosophical significance that we're still wrestling with that the philosophical significance like how to classify it and that sort of thing 
Um, so what we want to do in the paper is, you know, uh, bring it out, talk about who's discussed it already, uh, formalize the argument, and talk about uh, like what motivates the the premises. And at the end, we do try to give some classification uh, of the argument. So I. I think people should be aware of this and and begin talking about it. Well, you know, cosmological arguments, they're attempting to get at some sort of unique being, some, you know, like, for example, a being that's necessary based on observation of things that are all around us, right? Uh, so, um, for example, you have uh, the claim that dependent things exist, therefore there must be a necessary entity. Uh, Proust, he, he, he um, identifies <laughs> three types, Kalam arguments, Thomistic arguments, and then Leibnizian arguments. So um, the Kalam argument is Islamic, and uh, William Lane Craig talks about it. Uh, other people do too, but he's most known for that. Uh, um, and uh, like Thomistic, we, we see those in the five proofs of God, the five ways of proving God exists, like the first three are cosmological arguments, and then the Leibnizian. So uh, Proust further classifies arguments, um, uh, grouping um, cosmological arguments, grouping the Kalam and the Thomistic arguments on the one side and Leibnizian on the other, where the Kalam, the, uh, Kalam and the Thomistic arguments rely on a sort of causal principle Whereas the uh, Leibniz, uh, Leibnizian arguments rely on an explanatory principle. Okay, and just to kind of clarify things, you cast the Kalam and Thomistic arguments in terms of the, as you mentioned, the causal principle applied to the universe, while Proust frames this in terms of the causal principle applied to, quote, every event, contingent being, instance of coming into existence, or movement. So just to clarify, are we talking about the universe coming into existence, an event, or the fact that the universe might not have come into existence, so its existence being contingent? I think we're actually including both in terms of a cause of the universe or um, that, the, 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 you know, um, where, did, where did the universe come from, even if it's always been here? Why does it exist rather than not? So, like, um, when we're talking about the causal, causal origin of the universe, the Kalam will trace back the origin in time to a beginning point, whereas the Thomistic arguments don't rely on the universe having a beginning. Um, but they, um, it's more of a what, you know, what is the universe dependent upon because the universe is a dependent entity. Uh, and I don't know if, Matt, you have anything to add to that. I agree. I of course when we're writing the paper together. Of course we agree. Um, we agree on everything. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I, th I think we kind of leave it open, and I think there's a good reason for leaving it open. Um, and we'll come into this later when we start talking about the details of the argument. But um, it, like, when you frame a, a cosmological argument like Craig does with the Kalam. Um, it opens you up to certain kinds of objections that if you leave it open, you don't have to deal with as, as much. Okay, so, right. So instead of committing to the Kalam and then facing objections from 
to like Hilbert's hotel he uses yeah to show that there can't be an actual you know infinite existing in in reality so is is what you're saying by leaving it open then we avoid sort of the debate about grim reapers and Hilbert's hotel yeah, and exactly. stuff like that I yeah. okay. I'm not an, an expert by any means on the philosophy of infinity but I've I've read smarter people than me and it it seems like it's uh at least we could say it's uh not a settled issue or it's there there are people who disagree about the possibility of a of an infinite series the the actually existent infinite series right so uh uh and, and to be clear like the, that that would be a like a temporal series that that we're yeah. talking about um and um so Aquinas, he uh, his argument would stand whether the universe began to exist or whether it didn't begin to exist. Whereas with the Kalam, if we somehow found out, uh, or or that the you know Big Bang cosmology was overturned or something, and it looks like you know the science points toward a, an eternal universe, well, his argument still would go through. Mm-hmm. And could you explain that? Um why a Thomistic argument denies or what it means for a Thomistic argument to deny the possibility of an infinite, essentially ordered regress? Yeah, what if I give an explanation and then, Matt, you bring out some of those examples uh, that we talked about. So um, uh, to talk about an infinite, essentially ordered regress, we're not talking about going back in time, you, you know, like you're who, who brought me into existence, my parents, who brought them, well, eventually you've got to get to a beginning point in the universe. No, it's more like a, um, a relation, relations of dependency. And if all you ever have, um, if, you, if you have an infinite series, you, you have an infinite series of dependent things with, with nothing to explain, uh, to cause it uh, to, to come into existence in the first place. Uh, and so uh, there would need to be some sort of first cause that, that is not de- dependent. So that, that doesn't rely on um, any sort of temporal progression back in time. Yeah, I think that's the, uh, a good way of explaining it. And a couple of examples. One example you've already mentioned is like the uh, parent-child relationship. So I, I got these examples from uh, Ed Fazer. Um, who's written a lot about medieval and ancient uh, metaphysics. And like one, the, if we're thinking about an essentially ordered regress, uh, like Keith said, it's, it's not a, a temporal relationship. It's a dependent relationship. And one couple of different ways to think about it is uh, that Phaser uses is like a chandelier hanging from a chain. So there's like causation involved and the links of the chain are causing the chandelier to stay up in the air, but it's it has nothing to do with time. It's that dependence relationship where if we remove one of the rings, um, then the chandelier is going to fall, and it's it traces back up the chain to where it's connected to the ceiling or whatever. Another example um, is if you com- plug your computer into a power strip, and then you plug your power strip into a, another power strip. And then you plug that power strip into another power strip, so on. You're, you're, and there, there's like an infinite series of power strips. Your computer's still not going to have power to turn on. It needs something else. Um, 
at the beginning of the series to give it power. Um, whereas the, the temporal regress, you can think of uh, when there's causation in that kind of causal chain, the originating cause could be over and done with by the time the final, or the final link in the chain, the causation takes place so that the causal influence of the original thing is no longer existing and the last chain the last link in the chain of causation doesn't depend in that way on the original thing existing and thinking of uh lineages is a good example of that so uh my great 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 grandfather was already dead by the time my wife and I had a kid and so uh he's a link in the causal chain that led to me existing but his causal influence is over and done with and me being able to have kids doesn't depend on him still having causal influence at the present moment that's helpful and the Thomistic argument the chain itself could be eternal or mm -hmm. in time is that another way that it varies yeah so the, I, as long as the whole block is like being supported it could be in time, not in time, or eternal or infinite, and then or temporal and finite, as long as the whole block is being supported. Yeah, that's one way to think of it. Yeah, that, that's right. I don't. I don't think Aquinas thought that you could um, prove that there was no temporal regress. And so that's why he went the route that he did. Right. So just leave it open. Well, maybe maybe there is a temporal regress that goes on for infinity, but we still have this other thing that we need to explain. Well, yeah, gotcha. and, and uh, he he did believe that the universe has a beginning based on the scriptures, but he he thought that on the basis of reason, you know, um, you couldn't prove that the universe had a beginning. Yeah. Just to clarify, there is a small literature on Augustine's argument. And but some have actually argued, if I understand correctly, that he doesn't offer a cosmological argument. So can you explain why they argue for this and then why you think Augustine actually meant to give a cosmological argument in this little section of the confessions? Yeah. So it's um, th this guy, John Morant. It's an older work that he, he published uh, he, he says, uh, among other things, uh, but he says that he doesn't think that Augustine would give a cosmological argument because it's a posteriori, where um, Augustine was more in the Pla Platonic tradition, uh, where uh, he thought that like the primary way to know things is through rationali or rationality rather than through observation. So, so that Morant, Morant thinks that if he were to give an argument, it wouldn't be yeah, a posteriori, a, an argument for God's existence. So he's ruling out that this here is a cosmological argument on that basis. There are others, uh, Portoli and um, Ventureira, um, wh who do like pick out this argument specifically, and they they um, they talk about how it's a cosmological argument. Portley just mentions the argument in passing, and he calls it a metaphysical proof of the finite and changeable world calling out for an infinite and changeless creator. 
And Venturera actually um, give, devotes about a page to the argument. And so we add to that by um, really, you know, formalizing the argument, which Venturera never did. Um, and, you know, our attempt to classify, which is still a work in progress, um, we're, we're not sure if we agree with him in its classification. Okay, that's helpful. And then we'll we'll sort of get to that classification point later. But before we do, why don't we get on the table the passage and then your initial formulization of the argument or putting it in standard logical form. So here we go. This is in the Confessions, Book 11, Chapter 4, Paragraph 6, to, to get real specific. And the argument only is in that one paragraph in in the confessions that that we could see so he says see heaven and earth exist they cry aloud that they are made for they suffer change and variation but in anything which is not made and yet is there is nothing which previously was not present to be what once was not the case is to be subject to change and variation they also cry aloud that they have not made themselves they say the manner of our existence shows that we are made for we before we came to be, we did not exist to be able to make ourselves. And the voice which they speak is self-evidence. You, Lord, who are beautiful, made them for you are beautiful. You are good for they are good. You are for they are. Yet they are not beautiful or good or possessed of being in the sense that you, their maker, are. In comparison with you, they are deficient in beauty and goodness and being. Thanks to you, we know this. And yet our knowledge is ignorance in comparison with yours. So our strategy in the paper, uh, when we put it out in premise and conclusion form, we just list out how we could uh, set the premises up based on what's just in this paragraph. And then we go on to try to flesh it out later. So when we put it in argument form without adding anything of our own, uh, from this paragraph, we get premise one, heaven and earth change and vary. Premise two, anything which is unmade has nothing which was previously not present. Premise three, to be what was not the case is to be subject to change and variation. Four, before heaven and earth came to be, they didn't exist. Five, something that doesn't exist can't make anything. Six, therefore, heaven and earth didn't make themselves. Seven, heaven and earth are good, beautiful, and have being. Eight, heaven and earth, however, have deficient goodness, beauty, and being. And nine, God made heaven and earth. Thank you for reading it and explaining it. Now, one premise I was wrestling with, it could just be me, so this could just be an idiosyncrasy with me, but the premise two Anything which is unmade has nothing which was previously not present. There's so many ne negatives in there. Um, now, I looked at a different translation. This is the Barnes & Noble Classics. I, I don't. It's probably not as good as the translation you're using, but I, it did have a, a little helpful uh, reading of premise two that I thought I'd run by you and see if this is tracking what's going on in two. So in this translation, it says, whatever there is that has not been made and yet has being has nothing in it 
that was not there before. So again, whatever there is that has not been made and yet has being has nothing in it that was not there before. Do you think that's a fair reading of two? And do you think that makes it a little more obvious what's going on there? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a fair reading. Okay. Do you have anything and and why I say premise two is because I was like anything that's unmade. So you have something unmade and then it has nothing which was previously not present. So there wasn't anything pre-existing the thing that was unmade that it now has. Um, it, and it, it, I mean, you can explain it, but then it, it seems sort of um, are we talking about in premise two that it, it's. Whatever's unmade essentially is purely actual. It can't mm -hmm. have any potentiality of something that previously was present being in that thing, which is unmade. Yeah, I, th I think it's helpful to remember how Neoplatonic uh, Augustine is. And uh, I mean, if you think of your Plato, that there are things that don't change they're not made they're eternal um the forms or whatever you want to call them uh I th think of those kinds of things um when you're thinking of something that's unmade it's something that's always existing or all has always existed um that kind of thing okay and can you explain plotinus's influence on his thinking specifically as it goes into premise two, is that what you were sort of drawing out? Yeah, that's that's where I was going. So um, it, it's not anything that we were the first to notice. So this is kind of common when you read uh, other people talking about Augustine. They they note the influence of Plotinus on his thinking. Let me read a section from the Aeneids. Um, Plotinus, or this isn't a quotation, but Plotinus holds to the eternality of the universe. Um, and he's got sections on providence, so he attempts to explain the providence ruling the universe, bringing it about not in time, but in derivation. And so if you read about the Plotinus's metaphysics, he has this process of emanation where there are these unchanging, unmade things that he calls the one um, I think intelligence is another one of them. And everything that exists kind of flows out of those one things through this process of emanation. I would add, um, if you're talking about, uh, if, you're, if you look at premise two, um, if something has something which was previously not present within it, then what it has is potentiality, right? But he, uh, Augustine is talking about something that's unmade, if it's unmade, he thinks it would have it would not have anything um, which was previously previously not present. Which, as you were talking about, um, Christopher, is uh, that that the, this is a sort of thing that is pure actuality, right? Um, it's eternal and necessary and has no potentiality in it. Okay, yeah, that that's helpful. Um, now, shifting to premise three, how do you? Sort of, can you explain that? And then, how does an insight from Plotinus point us away from a version of the principle of sufficient reason 
being involved at this stage. Uh, as you know, most Leibnizian arguments rely either on the principle of sufficient reason or a non-local causal principle. So does the lack of a PSR being featured in the argument sort of mean you're inclined to classify this as a non-PSR Leibnizian argument? Uh, well, let, let me say a few things about premise three, and then maybe Keith can jump in and talk about the how it relates to the PSR. Um, so if we think about the ways things change, there's a couple of different ways you can think about that. Um, you might think of something that comes into existence, like a substance or a thing itself coming into existence. Or you can think about that thing having a property that comes to exist or cease to exist, like a change in a property. Uh, so, like the my son came to exist uh, on the day that he was conceived, where he didn't exist before. So that's uh, a, a type of change coming into existence. And then uh, something that already exists, like I have a silver car. Um, if I were to take it to the the shop and have them repaint it, then its property of being silver would cease and its property of being whatever new color it was would come into existence. So in the contemporary debate on cosmological arguments, most people assume that if something comes into existence, then it either popped into existence out of nothing or it was caused. Like if you look up on YouTube, the William Lane Craig video from Reasonable Faith on the Kalam, like they've got a really, it's, it's kind of humorous where they show somebody with a magic hat and the rabbit just kind of popping into existence out of nothing. Um, so Augustine's Neoplatonic influence, though, doesn't allow him to entertain the possibility of anything popping into existence out of nothing, like whether the universe or anything else. Um, he assumed that if the universe is a made thing, then it has a cause. And so it might seem like the principle of sufficient reason is is assumed according to which everything that begins to exist has a cause, a la the Kalam cosmological argument. But we don't think that this is the right inference to draw. And uh, we note that in section 2.5.3 of the Aeneids, Plotinus states, and quote, potentiality requires an intervention from outside itself to bring it to the actualization, which otherwise cannot be, end quote. So if Augustine is assuming this kind of view of potentiality, then the universe, as a potentiality, must have been caused by something outside of itself. So in order to bring it from potentiality to actuality. So there's no way for it to come from potentiality to actuality without something outside of itself to bring to the actualization. Depending on how you cash out what the PSR is, um, that maybe this could fit into some version of the principle of sufficient reason because of the way that we're saying, well, it seems like what Plotinus is doing right here is giving us an explanation of potentiality requiring an intervention outside of itself. Like, uh, like you could kind of cash it out in terms of that, of like, well, if we're going to explain why any potentiality gets actualized then we're going to have to bring in something from outside of that thing yeah you mentioned premise four we just say that premise four is a conceptual truth 
So um, any entity, call it X, comes into existence. Um, before that, it doesn't exist. And so it can't do anything before it comes into existence. Um, so seems pretty, pretty yeah. true <laughs> before heaven and earth came to be, they didn't exist. Like, I don't know what else you want to say about that. <laughs> uh, just a conceptual or logical truth. Um, so the, the logical gap is that we can't conclude that the universe came to existence yet. Um, and there's two different possibilities of changeable things that we've talked about before. So the thing that didn't exist that comes into existence or the property that didn't exist, but now comes into existence. So for all we know, um, maybe the universe falls into the latter category of some property that came into existence. How do we know for sure that it falls into the former, that the universe itself actually came into existence and didn't just or we have like a eternally existing universe that changes properties. Um, so maybe it's logically possible that God for an infinite time makes the universe. Um, so it seems like we have to exclude that po kind of possibility before we can conclude that the universe itself came to be. Perhaps somebody could argue that as soon as we go from some time where the thing didn't exist to another time when it does, then that's what it means for that thing to be made. Um, according to this kind of view, that being made for an infinite amount of time doesn't quite make sense because we've got this the two times where it didn't exist at this time and it does exist at this time. Um, but we think that the good news is that Augustine doesn't have to rule out the possibility of something being made for an infinite amount of time. So for the purposes of the argument, um, according to either option, if it was made and it didn't exist at one point and does exist at a, another later point in time, or it was being made for an infinite amount of time, either way, the universe was made. Our one route to go is along with uh, William Lane Craig that we've mentioned already before and argue that an infinite temporal regress is impossible through the paradoxical kind of arguments like Hilbert's Hotel. Um, but as we mentioned before, those are controversial. So another way to go would be to appeal to uh, Aquinas' argument against an in essentially ordered infinite. Um, and here's another way to think about it still. So previously we concluded that all changeable and variable things are made things. So we distinguished also two ways of explaining change, the things coming into existence and the property coming into existence. But if the universe is a made thing itself, then this implies that it came into existence. And so if we compare this to the statement that some property in the universe is made, um, in this statement, the universe already existing is a precondition for it having the property that comes into or out of existence. So it seems like we need to conclude that the universe itself is a made thing that came into existence at some point in time. And we don't have to appeal to any kind of argument for the impossibility of an actually infinite series. So we can kind of go along with Aquinas in that. I think that either way, whether it was oh, made okay. at a point in time or whether it's being made for an infinite amount of time, the, you can conclude from that that the universe is a made thing.
Right. So either way, it's it's made, and that's all this argument relies on. Mm-hmm. So this is like a strength of this argument, right? Yeah, I I would think so. I was telling Keith earlier when we were talking about this that the more I think about it, the more I'm moving away from the William Lane Craig style of Kalam kind of cosmological argument because we don't have to worry about the controversial paradox or however you want to argue against the infinite temporal regress. We don't have to worry about those arguments being successful because either way, we've got something that's that was made that needs explanation mm. or needs a cause. Okay, so that's that's a positive of avoiding a massive tangle of literature and that that as you probably know that co- the Kalam just seems to have endless epicycles of of literature and and often just arguing like the the very point you mentioned whether the the arguments against a temporal infinite series of things is uh possible so now can you explain to us premises five six and seven yeah i think i I can take care of that and uh, matt you could add something if you like five we say says something that doesn't exist uh, can't make anything, and we just take that to be a conceptual truth. It doesn't have any uh, powers or uh, potentiality. Um, <clears throat> six follows from um, four and five. Before heaven and earth came to be, they didn't exist. Something that doesn't exist can't make anything. Therefore, heaven and earth didn't make um, themselves. Not, you know, nothing can cause itself to come into existence, um, For first of all, because it would have to exist before it exists, which is impossible. And second of all, because um, of Augustine's Neoplatonic influence, where any potentiality requires an in- intervention from the outside, outside of itself, to bring it to actualization. So if something goes from... Uh, Potentiality to action, potentiality to actuality. There's something outside of it that brought the potentiality to actuality. And then seven, right? Um, here he moves into actually a new stage of of the argument, where um, you know William Rowe he talks about two stages to a cosmological argument. The first stage being that we argue to a unique being, and the second stage being that we argue to the existence of God, you know, God is that unique being. And many times we see <clears throat> that a cosmological argument will stop at that first stage. There is a first cause, there is an unmoved mover, or what have you, and, um, you know, doesn't get to that second stage of, is this being God? Uh, well, Augustine does commit to that second stage, and he um Basically, he he starts noticing things about the universe. Number one, that it's beautiful. Um, number two, that it's good. And number three, that it's it has being. It, it exists. It's the the question would be, you know, for premise seven, how did the um, universe get its goodness, uh, beauty, and being? Okay. So seven is a, just an observation about the world that it's beautiful, that it's good, that it exists. Okay, and then there we're going to get to that there must have been something outside of itself that transitioned it from potentiality to actuality that also has those 
properties or has those Correct. properties to a supreme degree. Yeah, that's but right. There's like a implied premise that's sort of missing when it comes to eight and you guys cashed that out or brought that in. Can you explain what that is and how you brought that in? One way to do it would be to appeal to some kind of principle where causes are like their effects. Um, and then another way would be to argue with something like an inference to the best explanation. So if we were to go with an inference to the best explanation, Augustine could point out to the effects that we've established so far. The universe is a made thing. The universe is beautiful and good. The universe possesses being. The universe didn't make itself. So each one of those is a fact that we've established so far if, if the argument is successful. Since the universe didn't make itself, then we're going to have to posit some cause outside of itself. And since it's beautiful and good, we have to the, the, the cause that is outside of the universe must possess beauty and goodness. And so we've got this cause that must be beautiful, good. And since it brought the universe into existence, it's got to be really powerful. And so what's the best explanation for something that's beautiful, that's good, that has being, that's extremely powerful? Well, the best explanation for something like that is God. We don't think that this is the most likely possibility um, because, of, because of the kind of neoplatonic neo platonic or the platinus influence that we've already noted um that augustine's probably pointing out to some kind of principle like causes and effects share these ba the basic kind of qualities like the the cause can't give to the effect what it doesn't already have some kind of principle like that and an example of this we use in the paper is just imagine like boiling a pot of water like the, you put it on the eye of the stove, the, the stove has the heat that it gives to the water. And it makes sense when you think of the way that works. But if we imagine like you just had a single match and a big giant, you know, 25 gallon pot of water and put a single match under that pot, then if that pot were to start boiling, we would be puzzled. Like where, where did all the heat come from? Um, so we would have no explanation for why that, 25 gallons of water was boiling as a result of a single match we could conclude that since the heavens and the earth are beautiful good and full of being whatever has them must have must share in these qualities just like the heat from the stove share or the the boiling water shares that the heat from the stove um, so the maker itself must also be beautiful good and full of being much like the flame can't give heat that it doesn't have to the water like the match the cause of goodness and beauty can't give what it doesn't have to the cosmos so we can conclude from this that the maker must have at least as much goodness beauty and being as the universe or the cosmos itself so one problem for this suggestion is that augustine concludes that the cause of the universe is god and god is good beautiful and in possession of being but our suggested inference is not to the existence of God, but to this cause of the universe that is good, beautiful, and in possession of being. So we need a further um, step to get to God. And we can go back to Plotinus to uh, have a point in favor of this interpretation. Plotinus appealed to a causal principle that causes contain their effects um, such that the cause can only give to the effect what it has. And then 
only to a derivative or weaker degree. So there's like a you're losing some of the the causal stuff that you're giving um, in the the process of causation. And so in in the Aeneids, Plotinus considers a lump of stone and a statue that's crafted out of it. The stone by itself isn't beautiful. Um, rather, the beauty comes from the form or the idea that's introduced by the artist onto the stone. So the form isn't in the stone, but it's in the artist, in the artist's mind. The statue becomes more beautiful than the stone itself because of the, the way that form was introduced onto it. So Plotinus states that the form is not in the matter of the stone or the statue, but, like I said before, it's in the mind of the one who carves it. And here's a quotation from the Aeneids. Uh, Plotinus states, the, the beauty, therefore, exists in a far higher state in the art, for it does not come over integrally into the work. That original beauty is not transferred. What comes over is a derivative and a minor. And he goes on to explain that as beauty enters to the stone, as, you're, as the artist is carving something, it's spread throughout and it becomes less beautiful. So we... When we think about this way, that if the universe, as a as a a beautiful thing, it's got a lot of beauty, and so if the the beauty that comes from the mind of the maker is being diminished in some way, then the original cause has to have extremely more beauty than the effect. Just like uh, at for the reason that the original beauty comes through as a derivative sense. So we're talking about, when we're, when you're talking about the inference of the best explanation move, we're talking about from um, the earth, heaven and earth have deficient goodness, beauty, and being, to the cause of heaven and earth has beauty, goodness, and being. We don't think that's inference to the best explanation. We think that is like a, a principle of causes are like their effects. We see that one in, in Hume. We think it's in Augustine as well. So on that point, we think inference to the best explanation isn't going on because of that um, influence from Plotinus. Um, and then uh, from 9 to 10, 9 says the cause of heaven and earth has beauty, goodness, and being. To 10, the we say, and th this is where it's a work in progress, the only plausible causal explanation for the goodness and beauty of the cosmos is a cause that contains supremely more goodness and beauty, God. There it looks like we're using kind of an inference to the best explanation, but I think um, we can avoid that, which is something we need to flesh out in the paper. We talk about it a little bit, but we need to flesh it out, that um, if something has potential, um, it requires an intervention from outside itself to bring it to the actualization which otherwise cannot. Um, the thing that produced the universe isn't a purely actual thing. Um, then it would require something um, outside of itself that brought it into existence. And you can kind of trace this back to a being that would be purely actual. And this is what Augustine has in mind by God. So the, the, the first move in 9 through 10 um, is more like the inference to the best explanation and the the second move is a d deductive which we'd have to you know spell out okay yeah that's helpful now 
I'm wondering, I, I want to run something by you that just came to mind, see if it helps or pushes things in a different direction. Given the deficiency of heaven and earth, I think you could also look at it and say that it has a lack of goodness, a lack of beauty. Of course, it has being, but there are properties that um, just observing the universe, you see suffering, you see death, you see all sorts of things that are not beautiful and are are challenging. Um, And if you go with the causal route from, I guess, eight to nine, then do we want to say this would be like an evil God challenge? Do mm-hmm. then we say like, yeah. you know, God must be have the properties of uh, pain and suffering and degradation that we see. And be- because we have this on this earth, God must have it to a greater degree. Would that push against going that that causal principle route? because he's just looking at nature and concluding things that a lot of people look at nature and see predation, see degradation, and uh, don't see beauty, or at least see beauty, you know, interspersed with a lot of pain and suffering and things that are not good. Yeah, I think that's a a good objection. And I I think if you go back to the, um, the, the metaphysic, the basic metaphysical principles that Augustine and Plotinus shared, um, so Augustine is famous for his response to these kinds of e- arguments from evil, that evil's not a thing that exists. It's like a lack of being or lack of um, living your life according to the divine will or something like that. The privation. Um, it's the privation, it's the privation of good, being, not... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it almost follows from, well, if the, the cause comes through in a derivative sense... And it can, you know, the the effects have less than what the cause gave it. Then there's going to be defects that kind of flow out of this chain of being, or whatever you want to call it, from the 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 original creator down to the existing things that are created. What would you say about okay. that, Keith? Yeah, yeah. I, I could see bringing in the evil as the privation of good to sort of address that, like like you suggested. I, I wouldn't say the defects come in at creation, but that the maybe there's a potential for the defect. Um, I, like the, the things that are created are limited. The things that are created are less than the creator, uh, but um, they don't, you know... Um, they are still at the moment of creation. So stepping away from this argument a little bit, they're still at the moment of creation operating according to their design, right? Um, but they have the potential for um, moving away from that design. Specifically, if we look at like a different point in the Confessions where Augustine puzzles over the origin of evil and he, he says that, uh, you know, maybe it was free will because free will uh that brought evil into existence free will is a good right and it can be used um for the good or it can be um turn a person a person can turn away from the good right so there's the potential for a turning away um from the original 
design plan, right? And so when a person uh, moves their their focus off of God, moves their focus off of uh, uh, or inverts the proper order of things, of placing God below the creature, placing the creature above God, then that's when I think he's saying um, evil comes into the world, right? There's a privation, there's a lack, there's a, you might say, a twisting of the good. So I, I guess I would say the original creation wouldn't have those those kinds of deficiencies, right? Although it would be limited, those kinds of deficiencies there, though, um, ha- have the the things that are created have the potential to sort of degrade. Um, and I think that's what he says happens with humankind. So you're you're making a distinction be- between the way things originally were designed, and created, and then sort of the way things play out and go astray from God's good and perfect will. And even though we may see things that appear to be not beautiful or not good, those aren't a reflection upon the Creator. That's correct. Yeah, those come later as a result uh, specifically of the the free will choice of, well, he traces it from Adam and Eve back to, you know, uh, Lucifer. The free will choice of Lucifer, that's where ugliness, um, you know, um, disorder, um, degradation comes into the creation. So things initially were created, although limited, they were still operating according to their design plan. Okay. Now, I thought we'd close out with just looking at interpretations of the argument. Um, And I know you're still wrestling with this, so I thought I'd flesh out a few things. This may just be more food for thought. um, But I thought it's like, when when I thought about it more, I thought of it like a combo of a Thomistic argument and an argument from contingency. Like premise one involves change in motion, like the first way. Obviously, it doesn't argue to an unmoved mover first cause in that sense, but so it has maybe that element from a Thomistic argument. Premises two to five kind of seem like step one in a modest contingency argument. So Rasmussen sort of lays this out, and step one is the dependence principle. Whatever's contingent has a prior condition. And I was thinking that in steps two to five, which give the sub-conclusion a six, you're sort of moving, like, you end up on, well, heaven and earth didn't make themselves. And so you're sort of suggesting that there must have been this prior thing that gave to the universe its actuality. And then seven to ten are kind of like the fourth way, perhaps, an argument from gradation so just briefly to mention one way of cashing that out, there's gradation to be found in things. Some are better than others. Things are X in proportion to how closely uh, they resemble that which is most X. So beauty and then ultimate beauty being in the creator or the mind of, mind of God. If there is nothing which is most X, there can be nothing which is good. It follows that if anything is good, there must be something that's most good. Therefore, there must be also something 
which is to all beings the cause of their being, goodness, and every other perfection, and this we call God. So I'm just getting, I, I'm not saying these line up perfectly, but I'm just getting the, the flavors of the fourth way in there. And then it seems like steps seven to 10 kind of go into a contingency identification stage, which I know you're still fleshing out and you've noticed there's still some gaps there. Um, so Rasmussen talks about this, like there are two strategies for investigating the nature of fundamental reality. And the first is from effects. And then the second he mentions is like directly analyzing the nature of, of the foundational reality. So I was thinking like regarding the first strategy in step seven, we get a consideration of the effects to a conclusion about the cause of those effects in 10. And then regarding the second strategy, we get in the conclusion that the cause of those effects is God, like possesses those characteristics, goodness, beauty, being supremely and maximally. And Erasmussen also provides a argument about the second strategy, only a perfect reality would have both necessary and independent existence. In has necessary and independent existence, therefore in is perfect. So that might be a way of getting to God, this being, this cause of the universe that has these properties being perfect and maximally uh, good or maximally having those those characteristics so what do you think about that i know that's a lot um mm -hmm. but any any thoughts on any of that well it definitely resonates with me what you're what you're saying uh and gives us gives gives us some good options for for um taking especially that that second stage where he gets to god from the maker of the heavens and the earth um, so something, something we'll have to, I'll, I'll have to think about more, but I, I, I did notice the, uh, like, yeah, the, 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 um, similarity to the fourth way, um, there in terms of degrees of perfection. Um, and then I, you know, um, he's, he's, he's moving sort of beyond, um, just like, like William Rowe talks about the, the unique being. Um, in that first stage to what is this being like and coming to the conclusion that it, it, it's uh, God who is um, good and supremely good and beautiful and full of being, meaning uh, fully actual. Uh, I, so I guess the best I can say is you, you've given us food for thought, and I appreciate that. I don't know if you have anything to add, Matt. Yeah, I, I would agree with what you said. I... I am not sure how to categorize this argument. <laughs> I want to think about it more um, and definitely think about the the suggestions that you've made, Christopher. Yeah, I'm just not sure where to, where to go. I think we definitely need to think about this more um, to see where, if, if it can be classified in one of the existing kind of frameworks or if we need to branch out and say it, it it's in its own category i'm not sure yeah well i i hope that's been helpful and um i was thinking that it is kind of its own category it would be like a hybrid mm -hmm. and i don't know if that would be the fourth category you mentioned in the paper but it would be a hybrid Thomistic contingency argument 
and uh, I look forward to seeing how you're going to develop it. Um, and Keith, is there anything you want to add as we closed regarding the confessions or the Evangelical Philosophical Society? For the sake of time, I'll, I, I won't mention anything about the confessions except read it if you haven't read it. <laughs> In terms of the read it multiple times. Yes, multiple times. Philosophical Society. Yeah, we're we're a society uh, of Christian philosophers who get together and we look at each other's work and give feedback on each other's work. And we have so we have conferences and national conference, regional conferences. So, you know, check us out, um, epssociety.org. Uh, um, maybe you could come to a conference and, and meet some of us and present your ideas. Another thing is we, you know, uh, published Philosophia Christi um, through the Society. It's the Journal of the Society. And we're always looking for good articles, good, good uh, book reviews. So reach out to us if you're interested in submitting something and and uh yeah we we appreciate it I'm looking for good people awesome well thank you guys both for being on coffee with philosophers super interesting article i look forward to how you develop it further and i keep keep thinking critically uh, about life's big questions you know keep keep pressing into theism with not only your mind but also your heart 